0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies, a podcast channel of New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman-Newfield. The most widely spoken Jewish language on the eve of the Holocaust, Yiddish continues to play a significant role in Jewish life today, from Hasidim for whom it is a language of daily life to avant-garde performers, political activists, and LGBTQ writers turning to Yiddish for inspiration. In Yiddish, Biography of a Language, published by Oxford University Press in 2020, Jeffrey Chandler presents the story of the centuries-old language, the defining vernacular of Ashkenazi Jews from its origin to the present. Jeffrey is Distinguished Professor of Jewish Studies at Rutgers University. He has served as President of the Association for Jewish Studies and is a Fellow of the American Academy for Jewish Research. I'm so glad his new book has brought him to our program. Welcome, Jeffrey. Thank you very much. So to get started, please tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to uh, write this work.
1: Well, my background is in Yiddish studies. Uh, that was what I got my PhD in at uh, Columbia University and uh, what I studied before then at the YIVO Institute. And I work at the YIVO Institute back in the day. And uh, even though as a scholar of modern uh, Jewish culture, I work on other areas of interest, um, what I learned in Yiddish studies really was foundational. So the opportunity to... Uh, return to this topic uh, with this book was a a very welcome one. And uh, this was a little unusual for me in that this book was a commission. I didn't set out to write this book, but uh, rather I got an email one day from an editor at Oxford who said, well, we have this series called Biography of a Language. Uh, Would you like to write one about Yiddish? And I thought, well, that's an interesting proposition. But before I answer, I've got some <laughs> questions. And my first question was, uh, you know, if this is a series, is there some formula or rubric that you have to follow? Because often with uh, uh, academic presses, when they publish series, um, that you are expected to follow particular structure. And if that was the case, I wasn't sure I wanted to do it. But they said, no, you come up with your own formula. And they said, you should look at the other books that have come out so far in this series. There's one on German, there's one on Dutch. Take a look and see what you think. So I went online and, and online you can look, you know, with the table of contents, introduction of these books. And they each one was organized differently. But I thought, you know, basically there's you know, histories of the language. Why don't they call it history of the language or story of the language or an introduction <laughs> to the language? What's with biography? Huh? And I noticed that when I was typing into a search engine that if you type biography of a, you get a whole bunch of books on all different kinds of things that are not people. And of course, conventionally, we think of biography as a story of a person, but you have biography of a germ biography of a building biography of a river biography of a planet. I mean, just the list goes on. And I thought, you know, So what's with this? Is this just sort of some piquant way of saying a story, a history? I wasn't sure what to make of it, but I thought, you know, when you say you're writing a biography of something that is not a person, you are anthropomorphizing it. You're treating it as if it were a person. When it comes to language, that's something people do a lot. In the case of Yiddish, not only do it a lot, They do it in a wide range of ways, some of which are very creative and productive, some of which are very problematic. The more I thought about it, I thought that's actually a subject of interest in its own right, that if I write this book, it really should uh, address not only the story of Yiddish, but the story of how Yiddish has been conceptualized, how it's been discussed and scrutinized and imagine, this is really key for understanding the language, past, present, or future. And uh, so as I was thinking, like, this sounds like an interesting project, I thought, how could I organize the books since um, chronological didn't feel quite right, or geographic, or ideological, the usual sort of rubrics for organizing this material. And I thought, let's run with this biography idea, and create a series of thematic chapters, that follow the subjects of a biographical profile like name, date and place of birth, place of residence, family background, gender, education, occupation, and so on and so forth, and ending with life expectancy. So I thought that would be an interesting book to write. And it would also (laughs) enable me to write a book that would speak to two different audiences. One is as a book that is supposed to be a kind of introduction to the language, for people who don't know much about Yiddish, this would be a point of entry and would provide guidance for further learning. But also, there are people who do know the language and know the, about the language and know a lot. And I, for them, uh, my interest was less providing information that they don't have, but proposing new ways of thinking about uh, Yiddish by employing this new way of presenting the language and And in doing so, I wanted to pose new possibilities for thinking about how the language has been conceptualized and how it can be going forward. So um, what's interesting to me is this is not a book I would have written on on my own initiative. It really is the result of this invitation. But on the other hand, when they asked me if I would like to write this book, I don't think they envisioned what I came up with. So I think it was an interesting confluence um, (laughs) of... Of possibilities,
2: all right? Well, I have to say, as someone who's read uh, a many biography, uh, you know, books um, that are biographies of things that are not people, uh, especially uh, you know, classic um, religious texts or or other cultural, um, you know, uh, landmark uh, books, as well as of uh, I don't know, germs and all sorts of things. I, I, I and I. As you, you you were speaking, I was wondering. Well, why did I end up reading all these? I'm not sure. But uh, uh, meaning specifically, what is it about the the promise that this is a biography of something? You know, I, what what is it that draws readers in? I'm not sure. But I will say, I think that you took the idea of the biography of an anthropomorphized entity much much more seriously than a lot of the writers of other biography books.
1: No, I think in most cases it's something nominal and um, it's it's a, a playful title and that's it. And I thought, well, what if we actually play with this beyond the title and see where it takes us?
2: Sure. Well, it's quite a a, a fantastic read, and uh, is really um, chock full of so many insights. Um, so, to to begin with, how uh, what are the earliest rec- uh, recorded uh, um, uh, writings of Yiddish? I mean, how old is the language?
1: Well, this is uh, a big question that is challenging to answer uh, on a couple of fronts. One is. That the further back you go in time, and this is true of other vernacular languages, the less and less evidence there is. And so the earliest examples that scholars cite are isolated words called Bilshon Ashkenaz and the language of Ashkenaz that turn up in Rashi commentaries. So that's you know the Middle Ages. Um the first dated written sentence is appears in the Vorm's Machzor, and it's a rhymed couplet. Uh, and it's that's the year 1272, um, and then you have about a century later, you have the first collection of texts, not just a sentence, but actual texts found in uh, the Cairo Genese. It's called the Cambridge Codex because it's now in, in in a library in Cambridge. So we have these documents, and the question is, what do they tell us? What what can be inferred from them? And what do people, moreover, think is the language being used? So, scholars uh, of Yiddish have claimed these terms, these the sentences, these um, these uh, uh, texts that appear in the Cambridge Codex as works in Yiddish. I'm not sure that that was how they were conceptualized by the people using them. Does, is the language of Ashkenaz, is it what we would now call Yiddish or is it what we would now call German? Or was it something understood differently than a modern concept of these two languages that are separate but parallel? And to me, what I found interesting about the, the question of where and when does Yiddish begin and I looked at, you know, these various theories out there. Um, Max Weinreich says it's in the Rhine Valley, uh, beginning in the ninth century. And you have uh, other people say, no, it's a little later. And it's along the Danube. And it's other people with other theories, including theories that it's really not a Germanic language, but a very lexified Slavic language. So all the different ideas out there. And I thought, you know, nobody even asks the question where and when does Yiddish come from until the 19th century. And that's re- what's really key is that it's not even a concern, an intellectual concern, whether by the speakers of the language or by other people, until a period in Western Europe where the question of where do languages come from and where does language, in, in, in generally come from, that's a new area of, of intellectual inquiry. And that's when you start seeing people starting to theorize where the language comes from. And these theories tell us at least as much about their preconceptions about Jews, their preconceptions about German language, their preconceptions about the vernacular that Jews speak in, uh, in Northern Europe as much as the language itself. So rather than having an easy answer that some people like to offer and say, it begins here, at this point, at this time, in this location, with this population, my feeling is let's question the question and think, at what point do people even care? Right, and it, it, you mentioned that there are numerous theories about
2: both the dating of when Yiddish began, as well as the location of where it was that it began. And you you write about how each of these theories have polem each of these theorists uh, who are promoting these particular theories have pre- uh, a polemical interests in. Uh, you know, that are, that are kind of embedded in their project. Could you talk a little bit about what are these different
1: polemical interests? So one of the important distinctions in people's effort to explain Yiddish are whether they think of Yiddish as something that began as German and then deviated, uh, or if they think of it as a distinctive language in its own right from the get-go. And those have very important implications beyond the language, but for the speakers of the language. And one of the things that you realize when you look at the story of Yiddish is that whenever people are talking about language, they're always talking about something else in addition. So in this case, (laughs) this is true of other languages as well, but you really see this in the case of Yiddish. So if you think of Yiddish as it's spoken by people who used to speak German, but then they Strayed from speaking a standardized language of German, a language that they had in common with their Christian neighbors, um, there had to be some explanation for that deviation, and none of those explanations are good. In they are nice. They are that well. They are too isolated. They're too insular. They're too secretive. Uh, they're just not able to, you know, master proper German. None of these ideas are legitimate, but this was how people looking at Yiddish saw it as something that was a corrupted form of German. And that, of course, has negative implications for its speakers one way or another. But other theorists said, no, Yiddish is actually part of a pattern of diaspora Jewish languages that uh, starting with the Babylonian exile, Jews go into exile. They encounter uh, new languages and from their contact of the language that they speak with the new language they encounter they forge a new language and that Jews have been doing this for about a millennium by the time Yiddish is, is, uh, comes into existence and it is a result of this pattern of contact between uh, Jews coming with the languages that they know and encountering Let's say speakers of uh, different dialects of Middle High German and creating on the spot a new language because that's what they do. And so that's a very different explanation of the language and of the speakers and of how to think about Jews in relation to their neighbors and cultures in contact with one another than the model of uh, the sort of corruption deviation model.
2: Right. And regardless of exactly how Yiddish developed, it clearly did develop at some point. And once it developed, we ended up um, with uh, uh, a language uh, that included a fusion of various languages. And I have to say, as someone who speaks Yiddish and grew up in the in the ultra-Orthodox Hasidic community and uh, spoke Yiddish from when I was a child, I, there were some things... Um, that I read in your book that I that I was familiar with, um, and so I knew, for instance, that Yiddish included elements of uh, Germanic languages, of Slavic languages, as well as of Hebrew. But one thing that really um, uh, uh, just kind of shocked me, uh, and that I discovered when reading your book, and now and then afterwards, I thought, well, how could I have not seen this? Uh, it seems so obvious, but it's really. Uh, I think, just a, a phenomenal insight, which is that not only are there elements of various languages within the language of Yiddish in general, but even in a given word, you could see that there are uh, aspects of the word that come from German, aspects that come from Hebrew, aspects that come from Slavic languages, and I was wondering if you could give us an example where you see in a single word um, elements of these three uh, kind of origin languages for Hebrew,
1: okay, so for, are, for Yiddish, right? So there are two that are sort of prize examples because there's a lot of words that have two elements, very very common. Uh, so for example, every verb. Has, is conjugated uh, according to a system that is from the Germanic component of the language, but the verb's stem can come from a Semitic language, from Hebrew or Aramaic. It can come from a Romance language. It can come uh, from a Slavic language. But there are few words where you get three. Uh, so the one that most people cite is Shlemazelnik, and Shlemazelnik, which means you know a near well somebody with just no luck. And you have schlim, which is Germanic. Uh, Germanic, uh, you have the word schlimme, meaning bad. Um, uh, mazel, from, uh, which is uh, from the Hebrew component, meaning luck or fortune. And the nick ending is from Slavic, which is a way of um, uh, 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 personalizing, making whatever you put in front of it a, a person who does or has whatever comes before it. So you have schlimmazelnik. The other one, Less often cited, but equally interesting, is balabatavin. So balabatavin is a verb meaning to uh, domineer. Um, and uh, it takes um, the uh, stem is uh, related to the word balabos, meaning a variety of things can mean a boss, a landlord, uh, a bourgeois, a head of a household. It can have a number of meanings. Uh, a person of stature. Uh, it's conjugated, it's a verb, so it's conjugated with uh, uh, endings that are, come from the Germanic component. And then there's a v, this little infix that is from Slavic that can have a number of functions. And in Yiddish, it often has a, uh, a sort of derogatory uh, a context. So balabatevin is, is not something nice. It's, it's, um, uh, it's an unpleasant kind of behavior. Somebody who plays the boss, somebody who's playing the big shot who's, uh, you know, uh, overbearing in some way. And so that and that uh, negative connotation, as opposed to a good person who's in charge of things, running things, um, is from that little Slavic infix. So that's another example of three elements uh, from these different components of the language coming together in one word
2: yeah well, it's fascinating. I, I I think for for my money, just that inside a load is worth the price of the book. i I, I just found that so fascinating. Um, uh, so thank you for that. Um, and um, you you talk about how what exactly was the relationship between yiddish and and Germanic languages. Was a separation
1: between Yiddish and these Germanic languages always clear? I don't think so. Uh, One of the things that we see in the earliest printed uh, books in Yiddish, which are, you know, um, uh, the 1500s, uh, when we start seeing Yiddish books being printed, we see uh, uh, the word Teich uh, being used. And Teich is related to the word Deich, meaning in Yiddish German. Um, But in Yiddish, uh, in different contexts, sometimes Teich looks like it means what we would call Yiddish, and sometimes it looks like what we would call German, but from our vantage point today, and it actually, to me, isn't clear that the distinction we draw between these two languages was so clear-cut back in the day. Um, Texts were marked... Uh, as for Jews, for example, as much by their alphabet as by their language. So if something's published in the Aleph base, in the Jewish alphabet, that's for Jews. No one else is going to be reading it, is the assumption. Uh, Books published in, the say, Fraktur, in in, in, the alphabet used for for German, uh, that uh, would be a book marked as for a non-Jewish audience because few of them would, would have that alphabet. The ones who did would be aware that they're reading something in uh, a, an alphabet that wasn't their alphabet, uh, but most people read in the olive base. And so you have um, all kinds of texts rendered in the olive base, sometimes where the language does look different from standard German, sometimes where it actually is striving very much to reflect German orthography to the best as one can, and and of course grammar uh, and vocabulary using this Jewish alphabet. Uh, And there's a a kind of sliding scale uh, that suggests to me that the distinction between these languages was much looser than the way we think about it now.
2: Yeah, so re- related to that, you talk about two terms, uh, uh, Yiddelin uh, and Moushelin. Uh, what, what are those? I, I don't, I don't know if I've, I've butchered the, the, the words. what, what do, how do you pronounce those words? And and what exactly uh, was were those words uh, uh, developed to signify?
1: Okay, so uh, Yiddelin and Moushelin basically mean the same thing. They're German words, and they mean to talk German like a Jew. And what did this mean? So you have, starting late 18th century into the 19th century, Jews living in German lands begin to uh, abandon Yiddish as a language of daily life and shift to using German, the same language as their their Christian neighbors. And this is part of a larger integration into a cultural mainstream that these Jews are pursuing. And this is met with ambivalence by their Christian neighbors uh, for whom the question of whether Jews could become full-fledged members of German society and uh, participate fully in German culture uh, did not sit well with many people. And so there was a sense that even if Jews develop a command of German, the way they speak it will somehow betray their Jewishness their uh, roots in Yiddish. And this was called Maushlin, derived from Moshe, Moses, or Yudelin, or from Yudle, Jew. So it's talking talking German like a Jew. And this was uh, demonstrated uh, considerably in German theater, where you had comic Jewish characters who um, strive to speak German, but it breaks down. Um, and that uh, revealing this sort of inescapable Yiddishness and inescapable Jewishness, this suggests that this idea that Jews could fully fit into uh, a German society was not possible. Wow. <laughs> um, uh, and and you d- talk about
2: how one of the, um, the 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 challenges to Jews speaking Yiddish. Uh, in Eastern Europe, or in Europe, um, was the the Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment movement, which uh, 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 had a very negative attitude towards Yiddish. What was that attitude based on?
1: So the uh, the Haskalah, usually translated as the Jewish Enlightenment, was a movement encouraging Jews to uh, integrate intellectually and culturally into a European mainstream culture and it is centered in German lands. And this is where this, you know, not just abandonment, but repudiation of Yiddish uh, begins because Yiddish is seen as emblematic of what keeps Jews apart, what makes it impossible for Jews to make this integrational leap, uh, both intellectually and culturally and participate in, a, in uh, this um in this cultural mainstream. And what I found interesting is that um, even as uh, the Maskelem, the followers of the Haskalah, are repudiating Yiddish, at a certain point they uh, realize, especially in Eastern Europe, that if they want to communicate the ideas of the Haskalah to their fellow Jews, the only language that they can write in is Yiddish. And so Yiddish becomes this reluctant vehicle for uh, making the case for abandoning the language you're writing in, which is quite quite an extraordinary thing. And um, that is um, th- that is, I think, uh, really sort of representative of the complexities of language use that can have, one level of meaning that's symbolic, and another level of of, of meaning that's instrumental, and and this uh, comes up elsewhere in um, in the history of the language. Uh, but this is uh, probably the the key moment where you get this um, uh, this this uh, repudiation of the language, but also uh, articulating that repudiation in the language, and often through forms of satire. Uh, and I have to say one of my favorite uh, uh, um,
2: uh, uh, terms for Yiddish uh, on the part of the Maskilim, uh, which I never i uh, seen before, is that they refer to Yiddish as Kugelushen, and I thought that was really fantastic, and and uh, so Kugel, of course, is a. a, a uh, Eastern European Jewish food uh, but it seems to me and, and I'm wondering if, if you think I, I'm just uh, reading too much into this that Kugel Lushen sounds a lot like Lushen Kodesh which is a, <laughs> the, the term for uh, for the Hebrew in the Bible and it seemed to me like this is an inverse of uh, uh, of Lushen Kodesh is Kugel Lushen, but that may just be a happy coincidence
1: you know it's interesting I never thought of it I wouldn't rule it out uh, to me, what's interesting is that um, this, of course, is a Yiddish term of disparagement for Yiddish. Uh, sure. And that's, to me, just, just very telling. And, um, and uh, one of my favorite, I guess probably my favorite uh, term for Yiddish is jargon, and jargon was used by musculum, uh, you know, related obviously to the English word jargon, the French word jargon, and um, as a, a, a term meaning something that is less than a, a full or proper language. It's either an insider language or it's um, a limited language, uh, but it's, it's, it's seldom a compliment to, to refer to something as... Jargon or a jargon. So academics are always told, you know, when you're writing for a general audience, no jargon, right? Meaning no insider language. (laughs) Um, And um, so to call Yiddish jargon was a way of of saying it's it's less than a proper language. And what's so interesting is that at a certain point, jargon becomes a name for the language, not necessarily with negative contexts, uh, uh, connotations. So you have Um, You know, uh, dictionaries uh, and textbooks that refer to the language as jargon. You have um, Sholem Aleichem, uh, you know, this foundational writer of modern Yiddish literature, and creates this uh, landmark anthology uh, of Yiddish literature. It's called the Yiddish Volksbibliothek, the Jews, the Jewish people's library, and uh, Yiddish in that book means Jewish. When he refers to the writers of this language, or even the spelling of the language, he says jargonische uh, Schreiber, jargonische Literatur, jargonische Eisleg. And so uh, here he is seeking to elevate this language, but using the term jargon almost as a badge of pride. Uh, and and uh, to me that um, that turn of uh, Jargon from a, 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 turn of, a term of term uh, of opprobrium to uh, a kind of badge of honor uh, is a very telling moment in this embrace of Yiddish as something you don't uh, you don't want to get rid of. You actually want to cultivate it as a national uh, voice, as a, as a national resource.
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
2: Right. Well, speaking of Shalom Aleichem, this, uh, one of the founders of the modern Yiddish literature, he developed his pen name in order to hide the shame of writing in Yiddish, which was thought of as a, a, a language for women, a female language. Why was Yiddish thought of as having a gender and that that gender was female?
1: So the gendering of the language is is so interesting, and we first see it um, in the early books uh, published in Yiddish, starting um, in the um, 1500s. And we see see on a lot of these books on the title page, explaining who the book is for. And sometimes they will say, "For for, uh, for men and for women, Um, But sometimes they will say they are for women, specifically. And that's not necessarily because of the subject of the book. And sometimes they'll even say, uh, for women and men who are like women because they can't read Hebrew. And that tells us what is the association that Yiddish uh, is, uh, as of the vernacular language, is the language that, Women can read. Um, Hebrew is the language men are supposed to be able to read. That women are actually discouraged from learning beyond, say, learning how to recite prayers in a prayer book, but certainly not studying sacred texts the way you would um, in a, you know, in in a Um That's that's male territory, and so the marking of the language is a study hall. With- Right. The study hall. So uh, this, um, this marking of the language as that, you know, the vernacular every day is associated with women in print, even though uh, these books are written uh, basically for the non-elite. Women represent the non-elite because the learned elite is only male. However, it's not most men. Most men do not develop the, uh, the chops uh, to be able and, and have the wherewithal to become scholars who can sit in the Besmedrash and study, um, this is uh, this is a cultural ideal. Men are supposed to aspire to that, but many of them aren't able to for one reason or another. So, uh, what uh, later scholars argue is that women become the uh, the emblem of the non-elite reader. You can't, you don't want to admit. Too much that that includes men because you don't, you don't want to discourage men from aspiring to learn Hebrew and to study sacred texts to their fullest ability. So that is um, that's the beginning of this association of Yiddish with women. Then during the Haskalah, you start having these masculine writing in Yiddish uh, uh, books that they they actually want uh, uh, you know everyone in Eastern Europe to read, all the Jews in Eastern Europe to read. However, um, there's a a concern in Eastern Europe that these books are going to uh, uh, disrupt and corrupt the study by men of sacred texts and that it will distract them and lead them astray. And so, uh, and in fact, there are these accounts of in a yeshiva, if you were found with some of these masculine Yiddish books uh, in, uh, in your possession, you could be expelled. Uh, Because this was not something that they would stand for. So to mark these books as um, uh, uh, separate from what men are ideally supposed to read and study, um, these books are addressed to the Tayar Lezarin, My Dear Female Reader. But in fact, these books are widely read by men, even if they can't read them as openly as women can in in, in certain circumstances, because women are excluded from this sacred practice of study as a devotional act. Um, They're actually liberated to read whatever they want in a way that men, because you are expected to be doing, you're devoting as much time as possible to this devotional scholarship. Uh, any other kind of reading is seen as imperiling, or, 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 or at the very least distracting from that. So uh, once again, the literature is 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 uh, is gendered as female, but uh, but it also, as a result, is uh, in the in the sort of hierarchy of languages is thought as not being on the same par with Hebrew and maskilic writers aspire to write in Hebrew as a modern literary language, which Sholem Aleichem started out doing. Uh, but he, uh, at a certain point, uh, realized that um, Yiddish was his his idiom. And at one point, when explaining this, uh, and it, cl- it includes this explanation of why he felt he had to hide his identity, because writing in Yiddish was not as dignified as writing in Hebrew, um, and uh, but he says, you know, when you write in Hebrew, you're actually thinking in Yiddish. Wouldn't it be easier to write in the language? <laughs> you're thinking? Which is such a remarkable statement. It's <laughs> a lot about the uh, different engagement with languages, and these, of course, are people uh, who know more than one language. Uh, he also, of course, knows Russian, and in fact, in his home. Uh, with his, you when know, he was married and was raising children, Russian was the language of of home. They didn't speak Yiddish at home, um, and uh, so you know, in this this multilingual situation, languages have different uses and values. And uh, so the the turn to writing in Yiddish was uh, a, a turn in thinking of its value. And of trying to elevate that value, that it wasn't this language that is merely for women, which, of course, gave it this, this um, uh, you know, second class connotation, right? This, this non-elite connotation that uh, he wanted, in fact, to embrace it for its value as this very rich vernacular.
2: Right. Well, speaking of Yiddish and, and women uh, and, 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 and books, what was the Tsenna rena and why was it so important?
1: So the Renna is a um, very interesting book. It is a translation of parts of the Bible. The parts of the Bible that are read in the synagogue. So it's um, the five books of Moses and then the portions of the later uh, sections of the the Hebrew Bible that are read, uh, uh, you know, portions of which are read in the Haftarah and the the, the supplementary readings uh, in the Torah services. And um, they're translated into Yiddish with commentaries uh, embedded, translated into Yiddish and embedded in the translation. So when you read it, it's a running narrative uh, that keeps sliding back and forth between the biblical text and then commentaries, many of which are are from mystical sources. And it's um, it, it was one of a series of uh, different approaches to translating the Bible into Yiddish it became the most popular version it was uh, uh, published in multiple editions uh, you know a couple hundred editions it's still in print um, and it uh, became uh, the most widely read uh, domestic book of uh, for, 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 for learning the Bible in your vernacular in Eastern Europe for, um, for generations. Um, it is also associated, it's often called the Women's Bible, but in fact, you know, look at the title page, it also says it's for men and for women. And, um, and in fact, it was sometimes used in, uh, in a cheder for teaching uh, boys uh, uh, how to read uh, biblical Hebrew so that they could read the Bible, they could read the prayer book. And uh, it was sometimes used, which was uh, criticized uh, uh, by people as uh, this is not the text you should be using. But in fact, it just shows how uh, pervasive, how popular it was. And it's, um, it's actually a remarkable text because of the way it, it integrates uh, all different kinds of commentary and also some folklore along with the biblical narrative. And they, they're just woven together in this uh, rich, complicated way. Uh, well, speaking of Yiddish and Hebrew, you talk about how there was a
2: difference in terms of how these two languages were learned. What was the
1: difference? So um, it's, it's a very key difference. So Yiddish as a vernacular and as a first language is a language that is learned by living among Yiddish speakers, your family, your neighbors, and speaking the way people learn a first language and primarily through oral use. And um, Hebrew, and here we're talking about uh, Hebrew as a sacred language. We're not talking about, you know, Hebrew as a modern vernacular language. Uh, This is a language learned in school, uh, uh, primarily by boys, but also uh, uh, by, by girls to a certain extent. And uh, it is a language one isn't learning to speak. It is a language one is learning to read and comprehend so one can recite prayers, one can read uh, the Bible, and then moving on to uh, other sacred texts, canonical texts that you would read um, that you would read and, and study in Hebrew. And so it is um, it, it's a language that's learned through translation. Into the vernacular, into Yiddish, and it's a language that is for reading and studying. So it's a passive engagement rather than an active engagement. Uh, Yiddish being primarily oral. Um, then at certain point, people do start to learn how to read and write it, but uh, it, it comes after learning how to speak it. Uh, whereas Hebrew is uh, was, was in this uh, in this period was a language uh, that was learned through, um, uh, as, as a language one reads and one reads for sacred intent, uh, which so that the, 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 reason for engaging the language is also different from, uh, Yiddish, which is a language for daily conversations with, uh, with your family and neighbors. All
2: right. Speaking of date of Yiddish and daily life, um, what, um, how do some of the classic Eastern European Jewish family names give us a hint of the kinds of vocations that uh, the,
1: uh, such Jews were involved in? So uh, at a certain point, like the uh, 18th century, early 19th century, sort of depends on where they were living in Eastern Europe, uh, as Jews uh, become subjects of empires, Uh, following the um, partitions of Poland. So they're either in the Habsburg Empire or in the the Romanov Empire. And uh, as part of increased regulation of populations in these empires, everyone is required to have a surname, a family name. And there are different kinds of names that uh, uh, Jews would take as family names. Some are uh, tied to where they live. Uh, the name of the town or the name of the region, Uh, but a lot of them are uh, names of their professions. And so uh, there's actually a long list, uh, much longer than the list I included in my book, of uh, names, last names (laughs) that uh, are maintained to this day that are... um, uh, Yiddish words for how people made their living. And so from this, one of the things we learn is the wide range of uh, occupations that uh, Jews in Eastern Europe uh, pursued, including uh, all kinds of uh, work as artisans, uh, all kinds of work in business uh, uh, professions that are tied to religious life. It's wide ranging. And um uh, and uh, what I find interesting is, that, of course, these names stay with people even after professionally they've moved on from being, uh, you know, uh, tailors or being uh, uh, glaziers or being uh, carpenters or, you know, being shoemakers or being uh, uh, Hebrew school teachers assistants or whatever the, the names that they had. Uh, but those, the names, uh, the names endure.
2: So could could you give us an example of a of a contemporary family name that has okay. a very obvious uh, um okay, so, uh, vocational
1: so, uh, tie-in? Okay, so Malamed, uh, or sometimes pronounced Malamud. You know, is uh, is a teacher, um, or um, Belfer, uh, or uh, is a teacher's assistant from Bahelfer, somebody who was the teacher's assistant who would escort children to and from school. Um, and um, uh, uh, chazen, which sometimes gets turned into chazen, you know, in English, as pronunciations uh, uh, <laughs> travel, um, uh, is, is a cantor. So these are all things about the, tied to uh, uh, religious life. But then there are also all kinds of uh, professions. Uh, Schuster, uh, shoemaker, and uh, Schneider, uh, Taylor. And of course, actually for tailors, you get a whole bunch of different associated names. So, uh, for example... Share, uh, um, uh, uh, which is uh, scissors. So was a name it's taken by some tailors because, of course, you use scissors or um, nodler from the, from the word noddle, meaning needle. Um, and so you have uh, uh, these uh, names that sometimes derive from the, the tools of the trade, as well as uh, the name of the profession itself.
2: Right, and you talk about the the Czernowitz conference uh, in 1908. What uh, was uh, what exactly happened there, and why was that so significant for the development of Yiddish?
1: So the chernovitz conference was convened by a group of people committed to championing and advancing uh, the role of Yiddish uh, in uh, Jewish life, and especially and especially to address. Jewish nationalist aspirations uh, in Eastern Europe. And this was happening at the same time that other ethnic minorities in the Russian Empire and the Habsburg Empire were uh, championing their own national identities. And language played a key role in this. Um, And so in the same way that... um, uh, speakers of Ukrainian and Polish and Lithuanian and and, and, uh, uh, Czech and so on were championing their languages as emblematic of a national identity. Yiddish speakers wanted to lay a similar claim to Yiddish and they also wanted to uh, elevate its use as a modern national language for literature, for press, for education, for political activism, and uh, for for, for theater performance. And the conference was convened to uh, try to create a platform for uh, this movement. And it gathered together some prominent writers, political activists, uh, and others who who all uh, had some level of shared interest in... um, this transformation of the role of Yiddish in modern Jewish life. And uh, the conference actually uh, wound up spending a lot of time debating whether uh, Yiddish is the Jewish national language or a Jew- Jewish national language, because what about Hebrew? And uh, so there was a lot of, of, of that going on at the conference, but symbolically the conference began to just put out the idea that there, there could be this agenda for uh, transforming Yiddish into a modern language for a Jewish nationality on par with the other uh, nationalities of, of Eastern Europe that were doing similar things with their languages.
2: Speaking of Jewish national projects and um, their connections with particular languages, what was the Gedud Ha Safa? and uh, why did it, uh, it um, uh, have a, um, a protest in 1930 in Tel Aviv when they were showing the Yiddish film My Yiddish Mama?
1: So, uh, what happens in? Um Uh, in in this debate over modern Jewish languages, you get what's called a Sprachenkampf, a language war. Uh, You have the champions of Yiddish, then you have the champions of Hebrew as a modern secular language. And uh, eventually uh, they begin to diverge ideologically and and Hebrew becomes more and more uh, central to and centered on Zionism. Uh, and uh, there are, of course, you're just speaking Zionists, um, but, uh, but uh, Hebraism winds up becoming uh, dominant. And this is in the period before uh, uh, the state of Israel is declared, in the Yeshuv period, um, where there is this Jewish settlement in Palestine. And there is a movement to uh, establish in this Jewish settlement Hebrew as the exclusive Jewish language, which is a challenge because most of the people who are settling in the Yishuv don't speak Hebrew. And if they do know it, they certainly don't know it as the first language or as a daily language. So there was this very concerted effort to adopt Hebrew and to abandon other languages. So you had these language police who went around uh, to disrupt the use of languages other than Hebrew. And this famous example of a screening of a Yiddish film in the 1930s in Tel Aviv. And uh, they disrupt the film. Uh, they you know, make noise, they throw things at the screen, you know, and, and they stop the, the, uh, the screening of the film. The next day, the theater shows the film but with the soundtrack turned off. So they have silenced <laughs> people, literally um, and uh, <laughs> it's, quite, it's quite a remarkable story. And there are other examples of this uh, often very militant effort to um, to insist upon Hebrew as the language of this uh, th- this Jewish state in the making. And uh, the repudiation of Yiddish, other languages as well, but I think especially Yiddish, partly because of the the number of speakers, but also because it was seen as emblematic of the diaspora. And the diaspora was something you're supposed to leave behind, and, uh, and, and, and this should happen linguistically as well as culturally and, of course, geographically.
2: Right. And you write that after World War II, for people who don't speak the language, Yiddish became a mock heritage.
1: What do you mean by that? So, what I found very interesting, um, and this was uh, started when I was studying Yiddish uh, at the Ivo Institute, and this is in the 1980s. And uh, friends and family were giving me these, you know, various things that have Yiddish words on them, or in comic Yiddish dictionaries, and like fridge magnets and coffee mugs, and they were all uh, sort of very playful, uh, uh, sometimes in poor taste uh, engagement with me. <laughs> I have to say, I hated these things, and I thought, like, you know, I'm taking this language seriously, and you're giving me this stuff that's really um, very uh, silly and limited, and 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 uh, uh, associating the language with things that are vulgar or you know histrionic, and you know I, I didn't care for it at all to say it to say it mildly, but at a certain point I realized, you know, my inner anthropologist said, "Wait a second, you know, this is actually a, an interesting cultural practice, and you ought to look at it." in its own value. And what I, I, I saw happening was that uh, in these mock dictionaries, so instead of like a real dictionary, it was a limited number of words with silly, playful definitions of these words. Uh, and these, um, you know, it was t-shirts and coffee mugs and all these other kinds of collectibles that um, they were a way of creating an attachment to the language irrespective of whether you had any command of the language, but that, this, that the language represented something uh, about Jewishness that people wanted to hold on to. And I think it was precisely this association of the language with the vulgar in both sense of the term, not only you know things in bad taste, but also common, ordinary, everyday. And that there was this, um, uh, this Yiddish-speaking world that had been around, that doesn't exist anymore, uh, and there was a felt loss of it, including not only at its highest level, but at its lowest level, that that was equally uh, felt as a loss, and that uh, these uh, these jokes and these uh, silly objects and these comic uh, uh, dictionaries were a form of heritage, but not um, not a straightforward heritage. It was a heritage that was... Uh, mock in its mode, that that was the way that you could engage with it, was uh, in this uh, in this very playful way.
2: Oh, before we conclude, I have to ask you a question which you probably hate, which is, what is the life expectancy of Yiddish? How, uh, what is its status today, and, and, and what do you see for it moving forward?
1: So you're right, I don't like being asked this question. And of course, the, and, and the reason is, is like, you know, I'm not a prophet and um, <laughs> i would say um what but I, but i do have an answer to this question it took me a while to figure out what it is my answer is the future of yiddish is expect the unexpected and the reason i say this is that when i started studying yiddish in the early 1980s uh if you went uh, if, you, if you went to me your time travel, and went back to the early 1980s and told me and my classmates and my teachers about some of the things that have been happening with Yiddish today, they would be quite surprised. Uh, so, for example, in the early 1980s, uh, the Cold War was on. Who knew what was going on with any Jews living in the Soviet Union or elsewhere in Eastern Europe, but especially the Soviet Union? And who knew when the, if that would ever end? But you know, uh, the end of that decade, uh, you have the end of the Cold War and you have the, uh, you know, the uh, end of the Soviet Union and an opening up of contact uh, uh, between Jews in the West and Jews in, in, in the former Soviet Union. And there's this wonderful interchange of uh, information and resources and lore uh, going back and forth in both directions, also archives with material that nobody could see. Even the people living in Eastern Europe, these things were under lock and key uh, uh, in the Soviet Union for decades. Now they were opening up. And so uh, researchers of all kinds were, were making uh, discoveries. Very, very exciting. Um, the... Uh, Uh, the uh, evolving of uh, the Hasidic use of Yiddish has been uh, quite remarkable. And uh, one of the things I found fascinating... For the ultra-Orthodox Jews. Right. And one of the things I found fascinating was uh, the the publishing of uh, what I would call leisure fiction in Yiddish. And that these were... Uh, they're like historical fiction or adventure stories. Uh, uh, and um, uh, what was interesting was to read the uh, Haskomas, the introductions, where it uh, uh, they, they was explained uh, that uh, why these books were suitable for a Hasidic, for an ultra-Orthodox reader. And they say, you know, that sadly, we live in a world where people want to read books, meaning secular books. And what are they going to do? We don't want them reading books in English. We don't want them reading uh, secular Yiddish books or Israeli literature in Hebrew. So we have commissioned uh, Jews in our community to write the kinds of books that they want to read, books that are entertaining, uh, that are suspenseful, that tell gripping stories, but that have our values in them. And so you started getting... Uh, books like that, and uh, also at the same time a proliferation of all kinds of material for children, as Yiddish is increasingly uh, curricularized language in uh, the uh, children's uh, schools in uh, Hasidic communities, and also for, uh, to have uh, Yiddish material that children can play with at home. And of course, again, that are, uh, fit the communities. Um, standards of what is not isn't appropriate, not only in terms of the text, but even the illustrations, that how, um, how the stories are illustrated should conform to community standards. So that was another development. Uh, the uh, the uh, flourishing of uh, uh, klezmer music as not only this resurgence of interest in traditional East European uh, instrumental music, but also of Yiddish song. And along with it, musicians becoming cultural authorities, because they would perform this music and also explain what was the world that this came from. And they were becoming experts on the culture in a very, very different way from previous generations of these musicians whose job was just to play the music. But now the music had to be explained as well as performed. And so these are just some of the examples of uh, developments that uh, show Yiddish being taken in uh, all kinds of new directions. And if that can happen in the last 40 years, uh, it's just going to keep on keeping on as far as I can tell.
2: That's a a really great answer. Um, Last question. Uh, Tell us what new project you're working on
1: now. So I'm currently working on a a very different project. Uh, I've started doing researches on, um, on Jewish museums and particularly I'm interested in how Uh, museums have become such an important part of of Jewish life, extending even beyond the museums themselves. Certain museum practices have been taken home uh, with with people in terms of collecting and displaying material. And I'm also interested in this particular moment of the pandemic when museums are uh, shut in many places and where there's a great concern that a a lot of museums may never reopen. I'm interested in the history of lost Jewish museums, uh, of which there are quite a number, uh, including museums that were shut down by uh, governments that uh, did not want them to exist. And of course, this happened under the Nazis, this happened in the Soviet Union as well, um, but also museums that uh, were planned but never got off the ground. And uh, to me, uh, the, these lost museums tell us a lot about the value that people invest in museums as a a new cultural practice. Uh, The first Jewish museum opened like uh, 125 years ago. So in the long history of Jews, that's very recent. And they really have become such a major presence, I would say only in the last half century or so. So uh, I'm interested in exploring, you know, how that happened and what what are its implications.
2: All right. Well, thank you, Jeffrey, so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, uh, that concludes our program. Thanks for listening, and have a great day.
0: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
1: A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh?
0: Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino.